thank you. It's great to be here on this Labor Day weekend. It seems to be coming a tradition that the uh, last couple of years I've been able to share and invited to share, so it's great to be here with the Mission Campus and the Lake Merced Campus, and I hope you have a great Labor Day tomorrow as well. You can see from the uh, handout that the hero of faith that I've chosen for us to explore together today is Leah, who is the first wife of the patriarch Jacob, the man who came to be known as Israel. And uh, I love Leah, uh, first of all, because my mom is named Leah. <laughs> and you got to love your mom, right? Uh, she lives in Jerusalem, and uh, in Hebrew, it's actually pronounced Leah. So that's what they call her in Israel. But for me, it always reminds me of a certain princess from Star Wars. So <laughs> for me and for our purposes here today, we're going to call her Leah. And I love Leah not just because it's my mom's name, but because Leah is a character in the scriptures who confronted pain, the pain of, as you can see from the title of the message, the pain of rejection. And uh, as we all live and as we all breathe, I believe we've all had to confront this pain of rejection, you know, whether it be the, uh, you know, the not being uh, chosen until the last person in the kickball team at elementary school, or hearing those mean girl kinds of cuts and humiliations concerning our appearance or whatever it is growing up to the more painful things that happen throughout life. Uh, friends, love, family dysfunction. We've all had to experience rejection, haven't we? And when I mentioned that word rejection, where did your mind go? in terms of your own life experience. It takes many, if not most of us, to a very tender place, a fragile place, a broken place. And yet it's my hope and prayer that as we look at how Leah, in her life, confronted painful rejection and lived through it and triumphed through it, that we'll gain hope for our own lives. And this story that we're going to read actually continues a narrative that Pastor Terry spent three weeks with us in the story of Eliezer of Damascus who traveled from Israel to Haran up in northern Syria to find a son for his master, for Abram. And it's a beautiful story. We really focused in on it and saw some very different cultural things that were happening when finally Eliezer found Rebecca and brought her back to meet Abram's son Isaac. And what a beautiful picture the story ended with where they, they embraced and were married. And it says Isaac was comforted through Rebekah in the death of his mother, Sarah. So the story continues, but from that point of beauty, it kind of takes a shift downward. And Rebekah and Isaac love each other, and yet they have two boys, twin sons, that begin to show some real dysfunction within the family, Jacob and Esau. Because you see, Isaac prefers Esau. Jacob uh, uh, is preferred by Rebekah. And this contention kind of manifests itself in lots of different ways until finally Rebekah helps Jacob to snatch away the blessing 
from his son, from, from his brother, from Esau. And there's this sense in which uh, it just becomes like a broken, broken family. And, and, and Esau is so enraged that he and his father had been deceived by Jacob and by Rebekah, his mother, that he, he swears he's going to kill his brother. And, and, and Jacob has to flee. He runs all the way back to where Rebekah was found by Eliezer, all the way back to the north, to Haran, and, and, and comes to meet Rebekah, Rebekah's brother, actually Laban, his uncle Laban, with nothing but the clothes on his back, fleeing dysfunction, fleeing this kind of pain. And that's where we pick up the story. And Pastor Terry reminded us as we were looking that these stories contain cultural things that we're unfamiliar with. And sometimes it's easy for us to sit in judgment on the scriptures. And people sometimes get mad at God when they read these Bible stories because, you know, we see women being mistreated and unfair things happening and people's lives being snatched away. And we, we blame God for it. But the Bible is not a book of fairy tales and it's not a book of virtues. It's a book that divinely unfolds the human drama and shows what life is really like, warts and all, and then helps us to see how through the grace of God we can overcome some of the pain of the brokenness that we experience in this world. And, and that's what we're gonna see as we look at this story now. So if you'll open up your handout, we see now that Jacob is with Laban, penniless, Jacob is invited to work and to live with his uncle Laban. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than to anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel. But his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Aww. <laughs> it's quite an exceptional introduction to this drama that we're gonna go through today. And, and I'm wanting us to understand the introduction of these two daughters. Because it says, Leah had no sparkle in her eye. And the actual Hebrew, ayin rakot, means that she had weak eyes. Now that is not so that she could go and get glasses and be okay. There was something of a Hebrew euphemism that speaks to us in contrast to the way Rachel is described. Leah has weak eyes, but Rachel is beautiful of form and face. So in reality, that euphemism is basically saying Leah is not so good looking. Painful to be introduced to a world in that context. And yet, isn't that what we often see, you know? The Bible says that people look on the outward, God looks on the inward. And so uh, my, my granddaughter, Nora, has a children's Bible story book and it tells this story and it just basically says, Leah was ugly and Rachel was beautiful. 
Nora says, does God love ugly people too? <laughs> I said, yes, God loves everyone. But here's a situation that certainly must have set up a kind of a competition maybe, some bad feelings between the two sisters, we don't know, but we know that because of this, it's very clear that Jacob has, maybe because he's shallow, or for whatever reason, he loves the younger sister, Rachel, not the older sister, Leah. But he's got a problem, and that is that he's come to his uncle Laban with nothing but the shirt on his back, so he doesn't have what? He doesn't have a dowry. He is not able to pay the bride price. And that's something that maybe we don't understand in our culture, but it's still alive in other cultures in the world, that if you want to marry a woman, you have to be able to show that by giving a sizable gift to her family, to her father. And so, uh, you know, I was taking a group of college students to Israel once, and we were out wandering around, and this Bedouin came up and said, I'd like to offer five goats and 20 chickens for one of the girls in the group. And <laughs> Wow, you know? I mean, needless to say, we didn't take the offer, but it provided quite a conversation for us. And this is the drama of what's going on here. So Jacob says, I'm going to work seven years. I'll be willing to do it if I can marry Rachel. Now, that's a long engagement, huh? I don't recommend it, but that's what happened. And so now we continue with the story in verse 21. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? It's not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over. Then we'll give you Rachel too provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. What a tragic development. And we read this story and we say, how is this even possible? This could come about. And it can and it did because of what we need to know about the ancient Near Eastern custom of wedding, Jewish weddings in particular. There was, first of all, a big party that everybody held. And you know what happens when people party late into the night. And so it's dark. And then right in the midst of the party, they would set up a wedding tent and that was where the marriage was consummated inside the tent in the midst of the crowd and it, you know it's the the chuppah that jewish people to this day the canopy under which jewish marriages are uh, brought about is is kind of a reminiscence of that ancient ceremony of the marriage tent and so 
the bride would wait in that tent with a veil over her face and would not see, and the husband would not see the face of his bride until after the wedding was consummated. So you can see how this could happen. And the amazing thing is that if you understand from Jacob's previous life how he had deceived his father, how he had tricked his brother, you see the chickens coming home to roost here, don't you? The deceiver was deceived by someone more deceptive than him. And he's enraged. He's enraged. But Laban has an answer which probably has some truth to it. Hey, we don't marry off the younger before the older in our custom, in our culture. I've seen some remnants of that in our society too. Becomes a problem if the younger gets married before the older. There's jealousy, there's tension. And so here's this amazing situation. Now, the fact is that Jacob only had to wait one more week, but think about the trauma that that brought. One week after she marries her husband, her sister, the beautiful one, gets invited in to the marriage tent. And they're both together with the same man. But it says that Jacob loved Rachel much more than Leah. Talk about experiencing pain. Talk about rejection. Talk about continuing this dysfunction in the family. And it did create horrible animosity between the two sisters. If we hadn't seen it up until now, in the following chapters, we see that unfolding. It's, it's tragic. And the story continues in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, when the Lord saw, and it's not like the Lord said, hey, would you look at that, you know? God knows all things and he sees all things. But we're reminded that he, when he sees, it means that he is with us and he understands what's going on and he's going to do something about it. Look what he does. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children. But Rachel could not conceive. Hmm. More tension. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. He was named Levi, for she said, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I have given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. There is an amazing picture that is portrayed here of Leah giving birth while Rachel cannot, and giving names to the children. That was a very important function in ancient Near Eastern culture because it not only expressed some sensibility about what would happen to that child, but it especially gave context for what was happening with the parents or parent in that situation when the child was born. 
And so we can see this amazing unfolding of this progression. And remember, this just didn't happen in the few verses. It happened over a few years, four or five years, certainly, for having four sons being born. And all along, what is Leah trying to do? She's trying to find the love that she hasn't experienced. She's trying to win the love of her husband. And with the names, she expresses that. Reuben is the firstborn son. Ra'aben, the Lord has seen. I've got a son, surely my husband will love me. The second, Simeon, Shema, the Lord hears. Two is better than one. I'm sure he's gonna love me, but he doesn't. Third son, Levi, Ya'alev, attached. The Lord has attached a third son so that my husband will be attached to me. That didn't happen. Finally, four years into this painful odyssey, Judah is born. I will praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord. This process, this anguish of heart. And then something, something happens, doesn't it? Something of God's grace And that's what I want us to unpack together. From looking at this story, there's going to be three principles that we can see from Leah's life that help us as well when we have to confront this kind of pain and rejection. The first is to accept what is true. Accept what is true about ourselves, about others, and situations. If we want to be honest and confront that rejection in a healthy and positive way, we need to be willing to accept what is true. I mean, the plain spokenness of the way that the Bible describes Leah. It is painful, and yet it's not anything that she's to blame for or anything that she could do anything about, really. It's the way she was. And the simple fact is that... <laughs> Life is that way. We're not living in Lake Wobegon, you know, where all the women are strong and all the men are good-looking and all the children are above average, right? Life has dealt out different varying gifts to people. Looks, intelligence, capability. And we carry pain sometimes for things that we had no choice in, in just the way we were born or the family that we were raised in. And that's true. And we need to accept that. When I mentioned that word rejection before, where did your mind go in terms of your own life experience? We need to see that there's a reality about our lives that it's best for us to accept and not to try to pretend it isn't. I mean, I remember the time when I became convinced that an NBA career was not in the cards for me. And I had grown up with a basketball hoop on the garage, you know, and I had practiced my shot and my dribbling, and I even made the eighth grade team. But during the practice before the season started, I remembered making the shots from the outside. But one day when I drove for the basket and I went to make the layup and I was looking in the chest of big John Dahlstrom, who was blocking me, I realized this is going to be a problem. And the coach realized it, and I spent most of the season on the bench, you know, the late-minute substitutes, and I realized, okay, 
you know, that's a problem. The sport has outgrown me, you know. It's a reality I have to deal with. It's not my choice, but that's the way it is. Sometimes it gets even more painful and we kind of joke about it. My mentor and the founder of Juice for Jesus, a man by the name of Moish Rosen, was a very large man. I mean, he was about six foot two, but he was over 350 pounds. And Moish used to joke about his weight. He'd say, I'm not fat, I'm just too short for my weight. And he'd smile and people would laugh, but I knew, you know, there was a bit of a pain behind that joke. And we all kind of figure out ways to deal with things that we can or many times can't do anything about. The point is we need to not allow that pain to dictate how we begin to behave. And there's some really self-destructive behaviors when our self-image and our self-esteem are at stake. And instead, what we need to do is to look to the Lord, to find out what is the truest thing, the best thing that God has said about who we really are. Remember, people look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, and that's where the most important thing is. God has given gifts to each and every one of us. What are those things? We need to focus on those things and find those things to be a blessing for our lives. You know, and sometimes it's, it's not that people are trying to hurt us when they respond. I think about Jacob and Leah. You know, it wasn't really his intention to cause pain. He loved Rachel. But Leah was brought into his life unexpectedly and he did his best with the situation, but it wasn't his intention to cause her pain. And maybe even Laban, though he was a deceiver, was thinking, you know, my daughter, I need to take care of her. I hope that she can get married. I'm going to make sure she does. It's our custom. It's our culture. I don't think he intended to cause pain to his daughter, but he did. And even the relationship between Leah and Rachel, you know, there's this sense in which Rachel was reacting out of her own pain. Her older sister was given to the man she loved and who loved her, and she had to deal with that. And then her older sister was able to give birth to children, and she was not, at least for a while. She eventually does. But there's a lot of times when the experience we receive uh, from other people is simply because they're acting out of their own pain, right? Their own rejection. So we can understand that. We can accept the truth of those realities. It helps us to get past that pain and helps us to embrace the reality of God's love for us, of the things that God has done for us. And this leads to the second principle for dealing with rejection, which is to find our identity in God. See, Leah was hoping to overcome rejection and gain the love of her husband through what? Through the birth of children, through giving him sons. And she is a picture of all of us who seek to find love and acceptance in life in the wrong places. You know, we just think if we can only you know, change our circumstances. It's within our grasp to 
remove ourselves from whatever it is that's causing us pain. And we end up living with the if onlys of life. If only I could, what? Get that one job that I've been looking for. If only I could find the love of this one person. If only I could have children. You know, these would, this would solve my problem. But instead, we need to find our identity in God and not in these things or these other people. We need to find out, first of all, what he says about us. And God says some wonderful things about us. First of all, if we know him, we're his children, right? You're a child of the creator of the universe. He made you fearfully and wonderfully. And his love and his affection is on you, regardless of how others have responded or how you feel. His love is on you. I'm a child of God. Jesus called us his friends. If you follow me, you're my friend. We're friends of the king. And that should change how we think about ourselves because we find our identity in these realities that are not just for now, but for all time and eternity. We've been accepted by God in the person of Jesus Christ. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he created before the foundation of the world. These are all things that are true about us and what God says about us. Learn those things Confess those things, believe those things, and watch what God does. We have to, like, to paraphrase Isaac Dennison, we have to embrace the idea that God had when he made us. And what did he say? Very good. <laughs> Very good. Look for the things that God says about us and look for the things that God wants to do for us. Leah was looking for love and affection from her husband and she didn't get it. So she tried to get it by having children that would certainly change the circumstances. And the Lord saw Leah's rejection and he did give Leah children, but not for the reasons that she thought. It was not so that she could win the love of her husband, but so that she could discover the love of God. And that's what came when finally, after four or five years, she said, Judah, I will praise the Lord. Don't you see that the grace is in the praise? When we're finally able, in the midst of whatever pain or rejection we've experienced, to just say, you know what, I'm gonna praise the Lord. I'm gonna have joy in him then that changes everything. That gives a spiritual power and a dynamic that made a difference in Leah's life. And God will help us and provide us with situations that will help us to endure the pain of rejection and overcome it. My most painful experience in life was when my wife of 26 years said to me, I don't love you anymore. And it was devastating. In the midst of all of this, my son Isaac, who grew up in this church, married his sweetheart, Shana. And they had an August wedding. And it was a difficult time because the following month, my wife left. They were both 
students at Biola University at the time, and they had two years to go to finish, and so they were not planning on having children. And they did what you're supposed to do to not have children. <laughs> but the following June, my granddaughter, Nora, was born. And oh, the joy that Nora brought into our lives. You know, and just recently I was in Southern California talking with my son about this reality and how much I love her. And uh, we were talking with some friends about how she was born before Isaac and Shana were prepared to have her come into our lives. And Isaac said, you know, I've come to believe that God intended for Nora to be born when she was because he knew how much our family needed it. God did that for us, for me. I see that now and I praise him for his grace. So look for the things that God will do for you to compensate for whatever pain you might be enduring because he does that because he loves us. Which leads me to the third and final principle, which is leave the rejection at the foot of the cross. Leave it, just leave it there. We have to do that. That spiritual discipline will really make it all a reality for us. And you know, this is a principle that is perhaps the most powerful from this story, though the least apparent because it has to do with this child that was born named Judah. I will praise the Lord. We've already understood that praise is a decision that we make, not based upon circumstances, but because we know that God is in the midst of it. But Judah was an important person of the 12 sons of Jacob. And not many chapters after this, Jacob is dying and he says a blessing over each of his children and concerning Judah, he says this in Genesis 49, and he says, let's see, can we put it up there? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. It's a kind of a strange phrase. The word is Shiloh in Hebrew. It's a bit mysterious until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. So this is a prophetic word concerning Judah. What does it mean? Well, first of all, it tells us that of the 12 sons of, that will become the fathers of the nation of Israel, the kingly line is Judah. But more than that, that this is gonna be a king whom all the nations honor. And there's a powerful truth here. And that is that God had a plan all along with Leah and the birth of this son, Judah, that she perhaps didn't even see, but that it was God's intention. Your son is going to be the one from whom all the kings of Israel are born. And that was true about King David, line of Judah. Solomon, line of Judah. And get this, Jesus, line of Judah. <laughs> He's the king of kings. And so in that sense, Leah becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of the Messiah himself. What an amazing thing that God had in store. 
And Leah couldn't have even known, but we can look back and see and then learn to trust God in our circumstances because we know he knows better than us what he's doing. But there's even more to it than that. Leah's life and her experience of rejection foretold not just the coming of the king, but the work of the king. Isaiah chapter 53 predicts an amazing turn of events in the coming of the Messiah. It says concerning him, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way, and he was despised, and we did not care. We all have a share in this reality that he experienced, and it is one of the most powerful realities because Leah's experience of rejection actually foreshadowed the work of the Messiah himself. Think about all the rejection that Jesus endured on his way to the cross. And the Bible tells us that Jesus now understands our pain, our rejection, our weakness, because he faced the same thing in his own life. Because he understands our pain and rejection, we can leave that pain at the foot of his cross. Leave it at the foot of the cross. One more thing, because he experienced rejection, we are now accepted. Isn't that amazing? His life provides access for those of us who embrace him, access into the very presence of God, forgiveness, life, and light. He had to experience that rejection on our behalf so that we could experience the acceptance of God because of his grace. Leah didn't know that for sure, but God did. The amazing thing is that we live in a life that is still painful. And I think in one sense, the pain that we experience and the rejection helps us to long for a future life too, doesn't it? A life where there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more tears. There will be no more rejection because we'll be in the presence of the one who loves us more fully than even ourselves. But we don't have to wait until then to begin to experience his grace when we just say, okay, Lord, I will praise you because I know you've got it figured out even if I don't. I will find my identity in you. And whatever pain I'm carrying, I'm going to lay it down at the foot of the cross. When we can do that, we will experience his healing. We will know his acceptance. We will have his embrace. Praise the Lord. In a moment, we're going to have our time of giving, and the band's going to come up for a final song, which I, I just love. There's a few words in there when the difficulties of life are contemplated. The lyric goes, man of sorrows looks with joy upon the crystal sea. What irony, man of sorrows looks with joy. My heart will hang on that until the dawn appears. How long? Until the dawn appears. Let's pray.
Jesus, we love you. <laughs> and we know that you love us, and that should be enough. But sometimes it feels like it's not, because we carry wounds. But we recognize, Lord, that you are the wounded Savior. That you experienced sorrow so that we could find in you the joy that overcomes all of the difficulties of life. So help us, Lord, to do these things. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help our heart to cling to these truths until the dawn arises. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 